Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Friday, it's December the 22nd. Today would normally be Friendly Friday, but we kind of took that all over on our big Thursday show yesterday. I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you didn't watch it, you can always find it on our podcast channel, which is rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. And while you're there, why don't you make sure you're following? Subscribe. You can do all those things right there. If you're watching this anywhere else, what are you doing? Get on Rumble. Go to rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin and follow the channel there. Otherwise, we appreciate you guys listening on Apple and Spotify, iHeartRadio. If you are an audio listener, but if you're doing the video, you're not getting it justice anywhere else we do it. We put it up on Facebook. We put it up on Twitter. It's not quite the same. Today's show is going to be a good time. Uh, we may not be a show about comforting lies, but we are about friendly faces and we like to have a good time on a Friday. So I hope you guys know that we are going to bring the noise. We're going to bring some energy. And as you'll notice, my attire is a little bit out of line for my typical my typical show. And I'm going to let you think about that while I run and pay a couple of bills here real quick. So let's do starting off with my friends over at 4Patriots. You guys can go to 4Patriots.com slash Kyle. When you do, this is the page you will land at. And what will you see? Options. Let me tell you. 72-hour survival food kit is one of those great ideas for 30 bucks. You can just have it. It feeds a family of four for about three days. This is like make your meals, throw out a couple of different portions, and that way you don't starve. Seems like a good idea, right? Okay, a couple of other options on there. You've got the uh, the uh, egg powder on there. You've got some uh, power cells. There's a number of different ways you can go about it. There's a car emergency kit. This is the time of year for that. Nobody wants to get stuck out in the cold. You definitely don't want to be starving and have no plan. So if you are failing to plan, you are planning to fail. Check out four, the number four, patriots.com slash Kyle, or just go to four patriots. If you click through any of the links and you use our promo code, because you remember it's K-Y-L-E, and they have all the deals queued up there right on that landing page. Folks, check them out. We do appreciate it. And then also, let's say thanks to my friends over at Catholic Vote who continue to keep the lights on over here. They may be dim lights. They may be blue lights, but they're keeping those lights on. Here they are, catholicvote.org. This is the best time that you want to be informed, especially if you are away from your normal podcast routine. And if you don't have the time to listen because you're doing things with your family, like you're supposed to do, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what Catholic Vote's all about. Use the loop. You can just put in your email, put in the zip code, and you will be looped in. It's about a minute worth of reading, and you'll be able to have the highest highlights of what's going on. Well, some of them are the lowest low lights. It just depends on the day. But this is a group that is in the fight for faith, family, and freedom, I can assure you. Looking in the back channels that's going on at Catholic Vote right now, nobody is too happy about the idea of blessing gay marriages. If you think that you've got problems with the Vatican, you should talk to a Catholic and definitely talk to a Catholic at Catholic Vote. They are trying to push back against all of it. Anyway, catholicvote.org. We appreciate them, and they will appreciate you guys signing up for the loop. So, All right, ladies and gentlemen, you guys are in for a treat today. We have probably our biggest guest in the history of the show, probably the most popular, most athletic, most legendary guest that we've had yet. Uh, Ryan, do you want to give him a little tease of what this looks like? Because this, this deserves some walkout music.
Universal Champion Roman Reigns flanked by his special counsel, Paul Heyman. Tonight marks Roman Reigns' 242nd day as Universal Champion. All right, so there you go. We're going to be bringing on Roman Reigns. Is that right? Our special guest today. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. That's not Roman Reigns. Well, what's going on here? We're getting played. Ladies and gentlemen, a lookalike, an almost Roman Reigns. This is the Sal Greco. Sal, thanks for joining me, man. I'm looking forward to this. We were already having fun getting warmed up. So welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks a lot, Kyle. That, that was actually that moment actually was the very first time that Roman Reigns walked down to the ring with that particular theme song with his special counsel, Paul Heyman, a.k.a. the wise man. And if I was walking down the aisle, I would have my special counsel, a.k.a. the wise man, Roger Stone. The, the funny part about this, there's a connection here. Back in the day, Paul Heyman, when he was younger, used to frequent Studio 54. And you remember that nightclub in New York. And the owners were friends, good friends with who? Roy Cohn. Who was Roy Cohn good friends with also? Who also frequented that club? The Roger Stone and also former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. It's a it's a very strange little small world of yeah. uh, elite echelon types in, in New York City. All right. We're going to have a really fun show for you folks we're gonna have a really fun conversation we don't always get to have a conversation a lot of times these are kind of serious type interviews you're a serious guy no doubt about it but uh so what i want to do is i want to start with where we're going to go with this let's give people a quick um bullet point of what happened to you that has made you a public figure instead of a quiet cop in new york city and then we're going to go back and tell the story of who you are and how you got to that point but give people kind of the quick and dirty where are we going to end up talking about so I guess uh, it, it all starts with the New York City Police Department. Uh, I was a 14-year veteran. I started in 2008. I had an unblemished record. Uh, I had numerous arrests. Uh, I, I have over 50 medals. And uh, somebody in the New York City Police Department became irked that I was a friend of the aforementioned Roger Stone. Uh, they turned it into a complete witch hunt. They used all kinds of illegal tactics. Uh, I was through multiple interrogations. I ended up in front of the January 6th committee, if you could believe that. They even tried some federal investigate, all this stuff. At the end, they said, well, Sal Greco did nothing wrong. He, he did not try to overthrow the government or whatever nonsense they're trying to claim. But we need to terminate you because you violated a patrol guide procedure, which the patrol guide governs the NYPD. It's a book of rules. Everybody from the rank of police commissioner on down, even civilians must follow it. There's a rule in the states you cannot wrongfully or knowingly associate with someone who's likely to have engaged in or reasonably believed to have engaged in uh, criminal activity. So that's what they terminated me on. They wasted a ton of resources. There's all kinds of crazy tactics. Meanwhile, Kyle, while this was going on, the entire upper brass of the NYPD was doing the very thing they accused me of, hanging out with this character who owns a nightclub in the Bronx and has political connections so this case is, you know, it's still ongoing as I sued the NYPD. And that's how I basically became a public figure, because once I went public with this, a lot of people were saying, well, <laughs> wait a minute, Kyle. So if Sal Greco is associating with the, the Roger Stone and calling him a criminal, I mean, isn't that what the mayor of New York City did when he was a cop? And then underneath him, everybody else seems to be doing the very same thing that they accused me of. And that's that's the point where we're at. That's that's basically the the gist of you know, how I became a, a public figure and why people have now, uh, I don't know if my name became a household name, but many people do uh, know who I am. 
So that's the moment right now in the in the movie where it stops and then it rewinds back and we're going to go back to childhood. We're going to go back to 1982 and we're going to start and play this movie forward with a couple of good clips. Let's do the montage version if we can. Uh, Saul, tell me where you grew up. Uh, Kyle, well, I grew up in, I, I was born in, uh, actually I was born in uh, Victor Memorial Hospital back in 1982, which was uh, the neighborhood hospital of Bensonhurst, New York. And uh, Bensonhurst is part of Brooklyn. So I was a Brooklyn kid. Obviously, I grew up in, a, you know, remember those days, the streets were being cleaned up by a, a well-known prosecutor at that time that became the mayor of New York. That was Rudy Giuliani. Uh, my father, my mom and my father both came from Sicily. Uh, they're Sicilian-Americans. My father worked every single day of his life. He worked from the day he walked in this country. I mean, he became a citizen on a few years, but he was paying taxes right away. Uh, he was a hardworking guy. He's a legend in the Italian-American community. Uh, he worked in the food business. Uh, I, as I got older, started to you know work with my father, and I was also involved in the food business. So I know many, many restaurants and pizzerias and business owners and uh, all around neighbor, uh, people in the neighborhood in Brooklyn and, and Staten Island and New Jersey, Pennsylvania. So I, I used to always get a look into how the country was back in the early 90s, late 90s, and early 2000s. That's what I used to do prior to becoming a cop. And then I ultimately did become a cop. And that's uh, basically where I'm at today. All right. Before we get to the cop thing, I got to ask some questions. My wife is from Brooklyn. You may know that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we always ask her, did she play stickball? Did you ever play stickball? Uh, yes, we did play stickball. Tell me about stickball. I need to know from someone who did. My wife claims she never did. I don't know if she's lying to me or not, but let's let's get down to the stickball situation. Oh, no. Stickball was a, was a big thing back in the day. First, I played I was I grew up in Bensonhurst, but then I also uh, later on, I, I moved to Florida when I was a kid and I came back to live in Dyka Heights in Bay Ridge. Mm -hmm. So when I was in Bay Ridge and Dyka Heights, we did have the stickball games only not only in the How do you start the stickball game. What do you say to start a stickball game? We say, OK, so we want to it was either between there was three things we did as teenagers. We either played stickball. Video games, we used to play GoldenEye and, and WCW, WWE games, or we would say, let's go play football, but football in the street was dangerous because the footballs could break, you know, the, the car windows. So we said, okay, what's safer? Stickball. But the problem was if you played stickball in the street, that ball, if you hit it far enough, it's gone. You'll never see it again. So we had to have those little, remember they were like the blue balls. They're blue or pink balls. They're like bouncy balls. So that's how we played. We played stickball, I think, with like uh, – six people maybe on each team because you can't get nine nine you need 18 is, people it's crazy is a is a uh, manhole cover is that second base and home plate so the manhole cover for us was home plate okay and then you would basically just kind of like draw the bases on the street we kind of measured it and then the outfield but really if the if the ball was hit past the tree it's basically a home run because you're never going to get there and throw it in it's gone. And it, we play with – so we had a catcher, but if you threw the ball to home plate before somebody ran to a base, they had to go back to the base they were at pre previously. So it street, you street, neighborhood rules, base, right? Neighborhood rules. Those are neighborhood rules, yeah. Yeah, that was how you played in the street. Now, we, if we played in the, in the uh, schoolyard, it's a little different. Now it's more like a baseball atmosphere. But the minute you hit the ball and it gets past anybody, it's a home run. So, again, it's the same scenario. But okay. So we played stickball, but we also played uh, kind of like a softball slash baseball. But where I lived in Dyker, if you hit the ball over the fence, which I happen to do, I mean, I was a big guy growing and up. No big deal, but you used it, to hit home runs. Yeah, I hit home runs that <laughs> went past. The, the, there was a, a church 
there was the uh, the school for the church. That ball actually went into the next block. So I was about a three or four hundred, probably more like a three hundred fifty foot to four hundred foot home run I would hit. So you wouldn't even find the ball. Hopefully, it didn't hit no car. We never found the ball. We didn't see nothing broken. So we said, okay, game over. I mean, it happened numerous times, but that's how we used to play. It's baseball or, or softball in the schoolyard and stickball in the street. And hopefully we didn't break any windows and stuff. That, that was the thing we were always worried about, but it never happened. That was what we used to call the humble brag. You know, you just did the humble brag. Are you familiar with that concept? Yeah, yeah. The humble brag is like, look, I didn't mean to end the game, but I used to hit like 400-foot home runs, and then uh, that'd be yeah. uh, Officially speaking, when you want to kick off a game of stickball, this is my instinct. I'm not from New York, obviously, but I have an instinct that if you want to start a game of stickball, it has to always start, hey, you guys won't play stickball. Something like that? Is that correct? Yeah, something like that, but you also need – you have to have the stick. So You need a stick? Uh, That's Where do you get the stick? Who's got the stick? It's basically a broomstick. It's so a broomstick. So here's the, we, we didn't have them laying around, so we'd have to go in their house. So they're basically borrowing from their parents, and then their mom would come out. Who has the broom? And what happens is you have to rip the bottom part out. So it's it no needs to just broom. be, yeah, just the stick, no, no broom. Stick. You got to so, unscrew it. So that was the thing. We would just play with a broomstick, and hopefully, you know, their, their moms, are, everyone's mom didn't catch whoever we took it from because the broom would be gone because we'd be playing stickball and we'd break the broom. That was hilarious. Those are, those are, you bring him back some memories now. Stoop ball was also another thing we played. That's, that's we have okay. First, you got to tell people what a stoop is. Not everybody has a stoop. That's yeah. a that's a New York thing. Yeah. So your stoop is the front steps of your house or your apartment building. Why is so, it called a stoop? Why is it called that? We call that a stoop in in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, was, but why? Why is it called a stoop? I don't know. I just I remember always being. It was called a, a stoop. We called it stoop ball. We didn't call it like stair ball or. Apartment building ball. Right. And the object of this game was you the same concept. You had a blue ball and you had to throw it off the steps. And depending on, I believe, which step it was, you get a point if your opponent dropped it when it was their turn. But you had to be kept. I mean, you could really throw this thing like 100 miles an hour. So this was the other small game that we played. And box ball. I don't know if you heard of that. So on a sidewalk. You know how they have the pieces of sidewalk. So two pieces that are, you know, cut in a square, two square pieces were box ball. And what you would do is you would hit the ball with your hand, kind of like tennis. All you have to do is bounce it into their box. And if they don't hit it back, that's a point. Or you go back and forth. As long as you don't step into the guy's box going for the ball. You mm -hmm. could also backhand it. It was all kinds of different this ways. This is like very early pickleball. You guys were, you know, Correct. you were pioneering the pickleball sort of spirit. In a, Very in early a Brooklyn on. way, in a Brooklyn in, way. In a Brooklyn way, which was to say in between cars and people walking their dogs and the mailman trying to do whatever and people running the interference, They interfered in the game because as you're playing, you know, box ball, if they walk by, you have to stop. Or, you know, what are you going to do? You're in the middle of running after a ball that you might not get. And then the, the dog runs into the box and then that's interference. So, so you get a do over there? Is there a mulligan? Do you get a mulligan if you uh, if the dog gets in the in the way? Yeah, well, I got to play the whole point all over again. So you just ran around and dove for balls, and the next thing you know, the dog is in the middle of the box out of nowhere. So you got to play it all over again. But these, these, that's what we did for fun: box ball, stoop ball, stick ball, maybe baseball and softball. If you don't break any windows, football would be the last thing on because obviously the that would do the most damage in the middle of the street. Or you get hit by a car, right? Like yeah, you're looking for the ball, too. and because the cars would be flying. You're playing in the middle of the street, so as you know, the cars are coming. Yeah, and you got to call game off. You got to call the game off. You have to call, okay, timeout as the car comes by. So wherever you're running, you have to stop with your defender next to you.
So they, they, these are like neighborhood rules yet again. So we, there's a, and that's how we had fun. Or we played video games at, at night. We played like GoldenEye was the big neighborhood thing. It was me versus two or three other people. We played, you know, it's a four screen at first. It was actually, I believe, the first shoot, uh, first shooter game that ever came out, GoldenEye. This is on Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. No, Nintendo, I think. Nintendo, oh, Nintendo 64. That was, everyone had a Nintendo 64 and that was the game. Okay. So it was so good that I actually never lost. I don't think I lost the game for about two years versus anyone in a neighborhood. That's how it became. You play with the. Was that Golden? I had the yeah, you knew where the you knew where the RC sixty four, whatever the heck that stupid machine oh, gun yeah. was that could shoot through everything. So here's the thing: I had a record like you. I can actually, I can, I can relate to this. I had an undefeated record on Goldeneye for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Nope, because I knew where all the weapons were. I knew how to throw the. Pro I could, I could pick any weapons. I could be proximity mines, and you would throw those up there, and you just, you know, ball yourself in. And your guys would come out and blow you, blow themselves up. Yep. Until I played, I was probably seventeen years old. I was probably in high school, so I've been doing this for years, and I played a little kid who was on Adderall, who was probably 11 years old. He was a cocky little turd. And he was on Adderall, and he played in turbo mode. You know how they could, you could run the speed like five times faster? Yes. So everyone yes. Could roll, you could yeah. run so fast you couldn't keep track of it? This yep. kid was processing at that speed because he was on drugs. And I remember playing that, and he won. <laughs> and then uh, I, probably, I probably put him in a trash can or something because that's, you know, you're yeah. 11, I'm 17, almost 18. You're going in the trash can. That's yeah. what happens when you cheat. That's cheating. You can't That's play. Cheating. We didn't accept cheating. Only real speeds. Yeah. And they, he didn't know what to do with that. They accused me of cheating because I knew I would, I get all the proximity mines. So I would <laughs> run around. So bring it back some, bring it back some memories, a strategy yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. You wall yourself things, in. The pro, so what I did was I actually just put the mines where you were going to press start and blow up. Oh, and yeah. they, where they respawn. So, yeah, so what they did was it was like I just went like this. I, the first time I, I killed the guy with the gun or whatever it was, and then I said, okay, now I just pressed – I put the remote down, and I said, just press start. What do you mean? Boom, he blows up. It's like 10 straight times to the guy. He goes the, – the game already had me up like dun, 11 dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And, the and I just goes sat down. there. I just sat there. So just, just try to – he he. That's and what he's, really and he's fuming. He's got. There's nothing he can do. It's very. It's very demoralizing. And then, and then I got so good that I said, okay, the RCP90 was the gun to have. That, is, that was it. RCP90. Yeah. I said this is what I did. I said I was this good. I said okay, I'm gonna take the. What was that gun? It was the silver. It was the worst gun. I had eight shots. Mm -hmm. So I was said I'm gonna kill you with this gun. You're not even gonna touch me with the RCP90. Next thing you know, I come up. He sees me coming on the screen. I do a couple of weaves and words. One shot to his head goes down. I go, thank you for the RCP. He goes, you got to be kidding me. I go, hey, listen, I, I was like a pro at that game. Yeah, you could have made money. That was a, That's a real profession today if we had come up it's today. A, yeah, imagine. But, look, but you would have been weak. You would have not been at the gym like you were earlier before we talked. Yep. You would have been, you know, some kind of a beta male, and you would have had a man bun that was not masculine. And, you know, that so luckily, luckily you came up the way you did. Why did you want to be a cop? I guess you know I was always a neighborhood. Don't say gold knight. Don't don't say gold no, knight. No, no, no. <laughs> it was. I think I I guess it's the the, the neighborhood factor because I, I thought I could make a difference with the people. Because my friend that I had at that time he became a cop, and within six months he called me and he was like, and this is how Brooklyn people, bro, bro, this this cop gig, bro, it's a good thing. I mean, bro, maybe you should, you know, I I think maybe you should do it, bro. And I'm like, I, I, okay, well, you know, I'm kind of doing this other thing right now. All right. If, if you're saying this works, then maybe I'll try it out myself. Because I says, I, I know I could do this because before that, I actually wanted to be in the FBI because my family 
had been either, uh, I believe, special agent in charge or right behind, very good friends with, at the time, director Lou Free. So uh, they were telling me, you could do this, but I don't know if you really want It goes, listen, if you think the Brooklyn streets and how this is, you don't like the way that is, wait till you go to the FBI because you're in a, in a den of wolves. Yeah, to be fair, you would have ended up in the exact same spot. We'd both be sitting here talking either yeah, way. So I've done the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, so, so, so then I, I saw, okay, so the police department maybe is a little different because it's, it's, you know, is more action. They would tell me like the police, you do more action. The, the feds are more of a, you just take a case. and might take a while. It goes that the, a police officer is running after someone. The police officer is always involved in something. So I said, okay, that sounds kind of like what I could do. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I went, I, I applied. It took about a year to actually, cause it was, uh, it was like 06, I applied 06, 07, and they had an academy class, and then that was the class that was still twenty five thousand a year. And then when I was finally hired, and I was in the academy, they had changed the twenty five thousand. They got a new contract, and it was forty four thousand to start. That mm. was while I was in the academy. And, and from then, you know, I thought, okay, well, I, I remember the first day after the academy was done, and that was that was. I looking back, I, I hated it at that time, and I go, wow, that was actually a good time in my life. So then. I was in, I got, I got put in Crown Heights. The only time I ever worked New Year's Eve was the time I came out of the academy. Tell people where Crown Heights is. January 09. Well, I worked in Manhattan that one night, January 09. And then I went to Crown Heights. I remember the first thing they told me was they looked at me and says, you know, you're six foot three. You're a big guy. He goes, you know something? uh, Just go out there with Uticab, whatever post I had, a foot post. Because that was Ray Kelly's thing. It was big on presence and having 20, 30 cops on foot posts in the area in Crown Heights so that, you know, your presence deters crimes. Although a lot of these cops were active. We were out there looking for, for whatever we could get our hands on, whether we'd be sneaking around a building and look for a trespass, somebody doing drugs, smoking drugs, driving drunk, stopping cars on foot, which I actually mastered at one point. So the first night. They told me. Well, let, let's break it down so people understand. First of all, Ray Kelly, that's uh, that's the police chief at the time? He was the, the police commissioner at the time, yes. Commissioner, okay. And a foot post is you're literally just standing. You, it's like the old beat, except instead of walking a beat and being from A to B, you've yeah. just got like a corner that you're in charge of. You're the yeah, guy in that corner. Be, you're allowed to go from that corner to the middle of the block. Then they change it to you have two blocks, and there's another cop down there. And then they, then they said, well, you could have a partner with you, and you guys meet up. Because they weren't big on this congregating stuff. Because actually, so she, this guy, the deputy mayor of uh, uh, that works under uh, for public safety, works under Eric Adams now, he was a chief of the Brooklyn South Borough, which I worked at that time. He was very big. He's big with these nitpick rules. He wants you to have, like, perfectly shined shoes. He also said, look, I don't want cops congregating. To today, they have a problem with that today. You know why? Philip Banks who, by the way, was an unindicted co-conspirator later on in his career when he was chief of department. But when he was the chief of the borough, that was one of his pet peeves, and he would send his goons, the sergeant and the inspections unit, to go look to see if any cops were congregating. Because you would get command disciplines, which was, as you know, it's how you get punished. You get put on paper, and then they take away time from you. All this time you accrue, they were looking to steal from you for, for nonsense. So so when we were out on a, on a foot post, they didn't want us to stay together. But Technically, you should be together because you never know what could happen. So on that first night, I was actually on a solo post. And they, their reasoning was, you're six foot three, you're a big guy, figure it out. 
That's what he told me. Figure that's it a out. Good, that's a good thing. That's getting thrown to the wolves right away. Right away. I got thrown to the wolves. It took me the first day. I looked around and go, oh, I see how this works. But I didn't really have anybody walking around. It was quiet. And then I started getting involved in the action. And I was always around the action or trying to look for the action. So that's how I then became a master of this stopping the vehicle on foot. Because and you told me, was your nickname the DUI King? That's not because you were drunk and driving everywhere. No, that was because I was locking everybody up for that. That was one of my, my big pet peeves because, you know, I'm not, I don't like to drink. I, have I drank in the past? Yes. Do I drink? No, I really don't like it. It was never my thing. So I found a niche on the job because I was trying to be, I wanted to be like, I thought I could be a detective, then a sergeant, but you realize on the job, as you know, and as we came to find out later on in my life, it's very political. So when I was trying to close out, I had people in the street, they were involved in gangs. And, you know, I actually arrested some of these people. And then when I was trying to gather more information and try to close out a case, not for me, but for the, the precinct, for the command, you had these old timers that were in the squad, which is detectives. And they would say, hey, kid, what are you doing? What are you doing? You think you're going to step on our, our toes? So I realized, oh, my God, you know, you got to be kidding me. This is all like a bunch of roosters in the, in, in, in the yard. And they're all, you know, they're all pecking away and say, oh, I'm the rooster. So I'm like, OK. What you I, didn't I, realize is the, the cardinal sin of any government work, whether it's state, federal, local, doesn't make a difference, is the guy that's motivated to go out and do more things because you're making everybody look bad. I could even right. hear it. I could even hear like a like a NYP detective in my head. Like, no. Hey, you're making us look bad. What are you doing out there? You're making us look bad. What are you doing? Get this kid out of here. Get this, even though it's twice his size, get this kid out of here. So yeah, but they don't. They don't. There's no fear because it's all. It's just administrative crap. Yeah, it's and that's what you were dealing with. So I said, okay, I'm gonna find something. So I actually one night was working on a. Where was that? I think it was somewhere off of Eastern Parkway, one of those side streets there, whether it be Utica or again on one of these streets. And I heard a call come over. And it was a drunk drunk. What they had it was a guy passed out in the middle of a in the middle of the street. He was just passed out in a car. Is that a man down call? You get that? Is that what they call it? Well, it, what they call it? it was a possibly drunk driver. Possible drunk. Okay. So I, we get, I got there. What I did was I was racing against at the time. I was part of what was called the impact unit, and we represented the Brooklyn South Borough, and the seventy first precinct represented the seventy first precinct. So whoever got there first would get it. So I got I got there on foot first. I got to the window and then as I come up the lieutenant was behind me and then his driver got out and the driver very nice guy. This guy was boxed. He was as you know he was he was done. He was done. He was drunk. So I took him out of the car and uh, more 77 one precinct cars came and then he looked at me he goes, "You know something?" And the lieutenant got out he goes, "You know something kid, I see you." He goes, "Uh you're going to get, you know, I'm going to give you this, this collar or I'm going to give you this arrest. He goes, you got here first. That's the rules. Whoever puts their handcuffs first takes the collar. He goes, so he says, all right, his driver who was the actual, I didn't know this at the time. He was the DWI specialist in the 71st precinct. He went with me and showed me how to do that paperwork on that arrest. And from that moment on, I made like a ridiculous amount of overtime on this because in this time, the DWI is a giant, like, you have to process this guy. You have to take him down to the precinct in the 78th precinct in Brooklyn South where he has to be tested through IDTU, which is Intoxicated Driving Testing Unit. So you have to do the whole, you know, the walk and turn, blow into the machine. All this stuff, all this stuff takes 
forever. It's a live case that needs to be drawn up by the ADA, and you have to be there in person. Before you know it, I'm like, I made 10 or 12 hours in overtime. I says, you know something? This might work better than trying to go and, you know, save the world when Mr. Detective thinks he could do it, even though he's not doing anything. He's eating pizza upstairs. So, so rather than doing proactive police work, rather than running out there and trying to do investigative work that you're not authorized to do and you're stepping on toes, you could just yeah. stop street-level dummies who are doing street-level dumb things that are endangering the public, and you're going to get paid overtime for it. Correct. It's a good racket. How many, how many arrests did you have in your in your career? You over three, personally, it was about 320-something. It was 320 and change. But I was involved in about 1,000, and I've done it all. Mm -hmm. I've literally done it all. I had the gun arrests. I've had all kinds of different arrests. But I always like this one because also, politically speaking, no matter if a liberal or a conservative is in office, nobody likes a drunk driver. So they won't play with the whole how you go about this arrest. You get, you know, oh, there's all kinds of laws now where you can't touch this person. If you talk to them the wrong way, you get CCRB, which is a civilian complaint review board, which my friend that I've told you about before, Eric Dim, as a lieutenant, has 140 complaints and counting, which he's been retired three years. So this this is what you run into if you want to be proactive, which they kind of don't want you to be anymore in New York City. And you could tell by what's going on there. And I, I was part of it when it was very proactive, when Ray Kelly was a police commissioner and Mayor Bloomberg at the time said, go out there and make sure that we don't have any of these knuckleheads out there doing this crazy stuff. So I was a big part of this stuff. And, and I wasn't a guy that abused it. If you look on my record, I don't have any CCRBs. I don't have anything. So a CCRB saying, is just a civilian literally complains against you and then they investigate you through this commission, correct? Correct. And, it, and this commission is run by uh, like ACLU is there and all these sure. different groups that are looking at, oh, I want this cop terminated. I want him terminated for this. For what? What, is the, what is the difference, though, on the street? Because you've, you've done it, like you said, when it was proactive and that was encouraged. And, and I remember that time. I remember my wife growing up in that time. And it seemed like New York was a place that was OK to be in. In fact, I remember probably my first trip to New York, New York City was maybe 2006. Something like that. I think I probably came in right about that time when it was very aggressive. The streets were pretty tolerable. And then the alternative is what's going on right now. What's the difference in that vibe uh, when you when you take hands off on the street level? Once you don't become proactive anymore and you become reactive, that's that's the end result. Proactive is you go out there and look, You people may not like being stopped or maybe getting questioned. Hey, did you see this? Do you know this? But you know something that's what will keep you safe. If you play it where you're reactive you're only reacting to whatever happens, which means you're always behind the eight ball. Instead, I was one that wanted to be in front of the eight ball. Because then when I later on, as, as time went on, I mastered the art of I still locked everyone up for be, being drunk. But what do I do in the beginning? I would go look for these small little crimes which like broken windows. If you were in a park after dark, you go over to a guy, what are you doing here? Oh, well, you know, oh, give me your ID and you got summons. He might have got 10 summonses, but you'll never do that again because that's how you eliminate these crazy scenarios where you hear about these crazy things that people do in the, in the park or leaving their car unattended. We had a guy. So I had a guy, that was a big thing. With me. I would write you a bunch of C summonses, which are criminal court summonses, which I don't even know if they do that anymore. And what I would do is the, the guy left the car unattended. Go in his go in the store, left the car running. Sometimes the keys were in there or you could just basically jump in a car and run. So they all got mad, these TLC drivers, which are taxi drivers and other people, because they say, why are you writing me all these summonses? Like, okay, I'll tell you why. One guy one time on Ocean Parkway, 
on Ocean Parkway, left his car in front of this, this, this store that I always used to pick on these people that left their car running because what happened? What do you think happened that day, Kyle? But you someone stole the, that car. Somebody took the car, not even for a joyride, they crashed it into something. And it was some guy that thought, I don't know what he was thinking, took his car, crashed it. They were trying to charge this guy for like, you know, I guess it was an unauthorized use of a vehicle, but the guy left the car running. So you can't charge him with that. The only thing you could hit him, I mean, it might be a summons, but he left the car running. The car was open. Anyone just jump in and take it. That was the point of writing the summons. Never leave your car running. I don't care if it's five degrees or 100 degrees, because then you anyone could jump and jump in and take that car. So we were trying to prevent the grand larceny, grand larceny autos. That was the whole point of the unattended vehicles, which is part of broken windows. You're trying to stop the small thing before it becomes big. Let, and let's help people understand this too, because I think this is actually worth noting. Uh, for for all my audience that's very libertarian minded, I am the same. Like I don't want the government messing with me. I don't want the government telling me what to do. But there's a big difference when you live in a small town, like I live right now. There's seven thousand people that live in my town. You mm -hmm. could probably get away with leaving an automobile running. You could probably leave it running all night in your driveway, and nobody would care. If you live in bigger areas, one of the biggest crimes that I would see in the winter when I was working for the Bureau in D.C. is that people would warm up their vehicles in Washington, D.C. They would leave the car keys on. They would start up the vehicle. They'd go back inside. They'd go get their cup of coffee. Next thing you know, boom, that car is stolen. Yep. And somebody ran off with it. It's very common. So you actually need, unfortunately, I think, but because of the population density that exists in New York in a way that it doesn't exist on almost anywhere else in this country, you really need more proactive policing. You need a heavier hand of government. And so you were part of that. You guys understood what that took. And that happens in places like Boston. It happens in Philadelphia. It happens in Washington, D.C. and so on. There yep. are cities. Even L.A. is very different because L.A. is very population heavy, but it's very sparsely populated. It's spread out compared to what goes on in the in the five boroughs. It's a different animal out there. And so it, it's not... It's not the tyrannical thing that it looks like when you say, like, I'm writing summonses left and right, because you were trying to get ahead of something that could easily get out of control. And I think today's uh, evidence of what's going on in New York City kind of yeah. gives that people a taste of that, right? There was so much of that. I mean, the the, the park thing was crazy. Carl, I had a, an incident where uh, there was a park. It, this is all in Coney Island, my time in Coney Island, which was some of the best years of my career. But uh, there was a park over there. It was, uh, it was called the Calvert Vox Park. It was off of the highway when you got off exit six just before you would go to Coney Island Avenue, there was this park on the right and it was huge, but there was a gate that went all the way to the back. So in the back of this park is what you see is there's soccer fields and then there's a place to park. But if you had the key to this gate, which sometimes would just be open, there's a vast area that leads all the way to the end, which is where I believe there was a, a, it was a creek which led to the Atlantic Ocean, which was where Caesars Bay was. You could actually see it, and you could see the other end. There was another park on the other side. So Cava Vox Park, I would go back there, and there's 30 people or 40 people lighting huge fires, bonfires. Some of them had weapons. One guy had a machete. I don't know what they were thinking of. So we had to correct this condition. There's a Lord of the Flies scenario out there. That, and it's after dark, so it's after yeah. midnight. What are you doing here? Why, oh, well, we're just, no, you can't hang out in here. The park is closed. How'd you even get back here? These gates are closed. So, and then what ends up happening, Kyle, not too in the distant future, they found body parts in the creek. It was a murder. They dumped the body back there because, see, you're trying to prevent something like that. Or somebody, I believe, that used a, 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 one of those, at the time, it was the 
drone helicopters. Before they came out with this new drone, it was a different drone. And the guy chopped his own head off by mistake. He flew this thing too close and it chopped his head. It was in the newspaper. I remember when this happened in that park. So these are the things that would happen there. And you were trying to prevent it saying, after 9 p.m., there's nobody in this park. It, finally, we corrected the condition. It was very rare to catch anyone in this park anymore. But for a long time, I started my tour. It was 11:15 at night. I go straight to the park. And I see what kind 10, of 15, 20. It was easy. Yeah. And then after, so, you, after you get these guys, you write these guys' summonses, then you go look for your drunk driver because you just corrected a huge condition. Because as you later on, when the detectives came to me and said, hey, did you see we found this, these body parts in the, in, the, in the creek there? I go, well, you laugh when I stop 30 people and write them summonses, but that's how you prevent that. What, you're, what, like a, you're like a party police, you know what I mean? Like you, you sound like what my dad used to tell me when I was a kid. He'd say, there's nothing but trouble out there after midnight. What right. are you doing? You can't be in the park. What are you doing in the park? Nope. And uh, it's all fun games until we start finding body parts in the creek. Yeah. But uh, but but you found body parts in the creek means that there's some people are, you know, they're, they're yeah. abusing the fun. Yeah. Maybe the fun police needs to be there, and that's what has to happen. And that's okay. where I was, we stopped. I, these were the things I, I focused on as a cop. These little things that people today laugh at. Oh, you know that turnstile jumper? I, when I was in Crown Heights, I actually did that. It was it was called fare evasion. You'd wait behind the uh, where they you know where they swipe the card, and if the lights turn is a green, yellow, and red. So if they turn yellow, you'd have to check. I think I think it was a student uh, metro card, but the guy's not even a student. Where'd you get that? Bang, fare evasion. Then you find out the guy's a recidivist which then he has a warrant. He's a transit warrant. That's an arrest right there, see? And that's how that's how you would clean that up. I don't know where he even got the 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 the, the, the card because the card didn't belong to him. It belonged to someone else. He's not even a student. Where did he get it? Who knows? But these are the things you would prevent when you do the fare evasion. Today, I don't even know if they still do that. And then transit is a big problem because you have all these homeless down there. They got that stupid robot that costs millions of dollars down there that they have to put two police officers 24 7 the guard because they're afraid of somebody tipping it over and to the tracks or destroying it or putting graffiti this is this is the new york city under eric Adams, a former police officer may add so tell me about the hold on tell me about the robot i gotta know more about the robot what are yeah. we talking about they got r2d2 down there checking yeah, fares or what down there he looks more like the short circuit uh, remember short circuit oh, johnny, johnny five yeah he looks like johnny five down there and they have him on the first, I guess, the first floor. Because if he goes on the second floor, they're gonna oh, they're gonna throw this thing in, into the tracks and have a train. <laughs> because you have literal psychos running around in, in, in transit. So, how do you justify spending all this money for a robot that's irrelevant? Because you can't do anything with it. And two cops have to monitor this thing at all times because they're afraid of the graffiti or if somebody's gonna try to you know damage it. Or actually throw it on the train tracks. That's the one that everyone's worried about. They're so, worried about Johnny Five hitting the tracks, getting the uh, third rail treatment. I, I guess it's just what they. This is what they want to replace human beings with the robot. Right. But the robot is is a, it's not going to work because you still have criminals that are going to throw this thing onto the tracks. Well, I think the best part is that the the one robot takes the job of one cop, maybe, but it requires. Two cops to watch, watch the one robot. Yeah. This is actually really good for the PD's uh, probably, you know, man force sort of situation. Plus, someone's got to repair the damn robot. So this is oh, a yeah. perfect government idea. That is government in a nutshell. Let's create a good idea. Uh, we used to call that the good idea fairy. You guys have that in New York? The good idea fairy? 
they didn't have a good idea for they have this is like a we call it like a brainstorm all oh, these brilliant brainstorms from one police plaza and the yeah. and city hall that yeah. does it doesn't work well that's that's what the the good idea fairy comes in and visits somebody in the brainstorm and says hey I got a great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to create a robot that does the job of one of the cops and it costs a million dollars, but it never needs a break and it never needs, you know, a, it never needs a, a raise and so on. It's only going to cost another couple hundred thousand dollars to maintain it. So now we're like six, six or eight or 10 salaries deep. So we've already made it not worth anything at all. It's totally yep. useless. And then the upside is, is that if somebody throws it on the tracks, then we're out a million dollars plus whatever it costs to fix it. So we're going to staff two more guys to watch it. And somebody goes like, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, we're into that. The Good Idea Fairy is constantly at work in the military and in paramilitary groups. How big is NYPD? How many officers are part of NYPD? When I was part of it, it was at least 36 or 37,000. I believe now it's about... 31 or 32, but it's it's dropping because there's no academy classes. So it's probably going to dip under 30,000 for the first time in a couple of decades. They just said that. Yeah, I just remember reading that, that they said that they were going to allow it. And they lost 2,500 uh, up until the point we did a show the other day. I don't know what it's at right now, but 2,500 in the year. And, and uh, just to point this out before anybody, you know, they say Eric Adams and this is all political. I'm just going to say this. Since Eric Adams became the mayor of New York City, he's been spending like a drunken sailor. There's all kinds of no-bid contracts and kickbacks going on, which is exactly why the FBI is slowly, you know, moving in on him and making him feel that he and basically he's dying by a thousand cuts right now. That's what's happening with him. But he was spending like a drunken sailor. And now, I mean, if you're going to put a, a robot in transit that you got to have cops actually monitor the robot. You're wasting taxpayer dollars. That's what he's doing. And that was before the migrants came. So whatever little money would added a budget that you need for the migrants, what about everything before that? That's what really compounded this. He's been spending like a drunken sailor. That's been the MO of the city ever since Bloomberg left. So he is to blame for everything you're seeing. Everyone, oh, it's political. Joe Biden's attacking him. No. I mean, we've discussed this before. If the public corruption unit is showing up, these guys don't even do these guys ever do any work other than politicians and seeing what's going on. They specifically zero in on corruption. They don't make many arrests. And when they do something, it always leads to somebody getting put in handcuffs. They zeroed in on him because he's got a career of this kind of behavior. His whole career has been doing these no big contracts. He was a state senator. He was he was part of that race casino incident where that casino in New York, the only reason he didn't get indicted because everybody else got indicted. You could read his own testimony. Andrew Cuomo, who was the attorney general, made that deal because it was, I believe, 60 percent of the profits went back to the state. So that kind of subsided. the. That was the only deal this guy ever made that was any good as attorney general or the governor. So when Cuomo made that deal, Got, it got Eric Adams off the hook. But he should have gone away for that. He got his friend a job with the casino at that time, Timothy Pearson, who later on now is in his administration, or he was, but he choked out a female, and they arrested the female and not him, so he's under investigation for that. I mean, he's another Eric Adams blunder. Then he became the borough president in Brooklyn, and what did he do over there? That's where he's going around the whole country. He's going to Turkey. He's made a movie. I don't know if you saw this, Kyle. He's on a film, a Turkish film, and the joke, I don't know if this is art imitating life, if this is a joke, but the two Turkish guys are basically trying to buy him as a politician. And he's laughing about this. And he, he goes, the I film. don't understand you. Is that like, are you are you being serious? I mean, this is something that could, they could bring in a courtroom and go, look at this. 
And then they find out that he's really involved with these people. So it's like he's been he's been like circulating this his whole life as a politician, as a cop. He was involved and he had the which is funny because now this woman came out of nowhere to put down that sexual assault thing. And no, it's not political. I'm going to explain this. The Donald Trump defense only works for Donald Trump. So Eric Adams was a New York police sergeant at this time. He was in transit, which at the time did not merge until 1995. So when Eric Adams was in transit, he was a sergeant and he was the vice president of the transit guardians. The guardians were a whole fraternal group. There was about six or seven of them, one of them being the NYPD guardians, which was separate. He always wanted that be the president of that, but he never could be, become the president. She is actually suing the NYPD guardians. No one has talked about this. This woman who they keep saying, he goes, I don't recall and all this nonsense. How does she know about the NYPD guardians? You know how? She was a PAA that worked with him, which is a secretary. She was a secretary in the NYPD transit division where Eric Adams also worked. So they're being very careful how to go about this. But I actually filed a complaint because Eric Adams, people, three of them, him, his city hall spoke, spokesperson, and then the uh, city, what was that, the corporation councilwoman, uh, Zornberg, she was at the press conference last week. And what does she state? She says, well, we expect that the law department will cover that. Actually, if you look in the law book under GML 50K2, which was, it's, a, it's a law, New York state law, you cannot represent him. He could ask and request it, but since when does sexual assault, sexual harassment, and and or rape fall under the scope of the duties of a New York City police officer? Let's dig into that for one. Yeah, let's dig into that. Okay, so folks, so you understand when you do a certain thing on duty and you're going to have your job cover for you, let's say you're an FBI agent in my case, and you do something and you're getting sued externally, it has to be scoped. It has to be something that you did in scope of duty. And then they can come in and they can say, yeah, we're going to assume your criminal defense. We're going to assume the civil liability. They will scope you. That's what the usual findings are. They do their own investigation, find out that you acted within the appropriate range, and then they go and they defend you. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. However, your complaint is, is that there's nothing about any sort of sex harassment or conversation with this woman that would fall under the scope of duties for what he did. Is that more or less accurate? That's correct. So what he has to do is there has to be a letter somewhere by the law department, which I requested because the taxpayers need to know, A, did he request for it? And B, what was the end result of this? Because they keep going on, we expect to, we expect to. No, you can't expect that. You can't be covered by them because that would be a whole other investigation because that cannot happen under their own laws. So this there, is going to be have to be honest. an internal investigation that already justifies whatever his actions were, adjudicates him in a favorable way, and then say, we found out that he we don't think he's guilty by preponderance of evidence. Correct. Now we're going to represent him in this particular civil case as well. That's what Correct. that would have to happen. But it still would be illegal because, again, you just you explain it for everybody. Sexual assault, sexual harassment, rape does not fall under the scope of a New York City police officer. I mean, there would be hundreds of other cops that have been through this where they had to get their own lawyer, which Eric, who, by the way, has two properties and he has tons of money laying around somewhere, from what I understand, can afford the lawyer himself. Hey, Fugazi already Idala, his best friend there, his, his attorney has all these uh, Fugazi fundraisers. He can represent him in that rape case, I'm sure. I'm sure Artie could get him out of it, I and mean, he's got a great track record. So there you go. Why would you want the city to pay for it? 
That's so, that. That's that, right? So how did you get in trouble? What's what, what what's going on? What, how did how do they end up coming after you? You gave a, a taste of it. Everybody's already listening to this. They're getting a kick out of it. They're finding out they see you're a, a good guy, and you don't work for the NYPD anymore. So how did that happen? So there was a original letter that came in. It was a blank letter that stated that I wanted a civil war in this country. So basically, hold on. Do you want a, do you want a civil war? Yeah, I want. Yeah, like that's 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 laughable. I want a civil war. Do you have any ability to make a civil war happen? Me by myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm exactly. going to overthrow the government. South in, in New York, no less. In New, from New York, I'm going to overthrow the government. So, okay. so, so this letter came in, and they acted because they had a of the first letter, which was from a disgruntled cop that was transferred out of the place I worked at, which was Citywide Traffic Task Force. Uh, this person wrote in that letter that I was Rogers Security. With no evidence, there's no facts to this. And how would you know? There has to be a money trail or something. They came up with the a crazy idea that I am Rogers uncompensated security, which is made up. There's no such thing as uncompensated security. So they went on with this investigation. I was interrogated twice. Uh, while this interrogation happened, unfortunately, Tom, my father got sick and my father had brain cancer. And it happened out of nowhere. He's 76 years old. Meanwhile, these people were just harassing me every day, whether it was on Twitter. I saw the headlines. I saw the Daily News wrote a huge hit piece on me, and they were still investigating me. And I luckily didn't. I didn't know this, but I assumed that they were going to look at my communications, where I was going. They were trying to tail me. So my father gets sick a month into this, and then right before my birthday, uh, I finally get a chance to go to where he, he was in a hospital in hospice. Basically, there was no cure for him because they were they had operated him, on him, but uh, the, the the glioblastoma was they cut out a little piece and it, like grew back overnight. I mean, it was stage four at this point. Mm -hmm. I go to the hospital. As I'm going there, there's a car tailing me the whole way. And you and I know how this works. Is I mean, you know how this works. I'm being tailed the whole way there. As I go there, I get out of the car. I finally go up to the room. And uh, I stayed with my father for a while. But th these are going to be the, my father's last moments. I mean, at this point, you understand that it's over for him. And I look outside and on the window, I see some this clown is watching the building. And what? I, and then my father ended up passing away. And then later on, when I finally got the discovery of what happened, you know, in their, in their investigation, which I will find out even more very shortly, uh, there's a video of him. Uh, videotaping me go to the hospital inside the inside the hospital and following me there and their reasoning for this is that they had to monitor me if I was going to go communicate with Roger Stone meaning I would have driven from New York to Florida only to drive back that night because I had to go to work I only went to the hospital because I was I thought I was going to see my I didn't know my dad was going to pass away and this is the kind of pressure that they put me under mind you Kyle I could never tell my own family or any of my friends because I found out that he, this clown, this sergeant, his name is uh, Jeremy Ornstein, look him up. He actually perjured himself in a previous case, which will come out in my case. He actually thinks he worked for your pals in the FBI because he was trained in Quantico. So he got a warrant, he got a Fugazi warrant, he got what's called an administrative subpoena on me after the first interrogation stating narcotics that I was involved in narcotics. But later on in the trial, when I finally got to testify at the NYPD administrative trial, he stated that I had no involvement in narcotics, 
nor that I ever, he didn't suspect me of it, but yet he put it down. I never was even dull tested, Kyle. So because he did that, he got all my phone records. I could tell you that on there, they actually were running people's names. How do I know? My friend, Frank Morano, who's a WABC radio host, he, show, he, he does a show at night. Uh, he was one of the names and it said his name and on the next to it, it said zero convictions. So they were looking to see if anyone I was in contact with had a cr criminal record. And they found one person, a neighbor of mine that actually owned a restaurant in New York. He owned a restaurant and they said that uh, uh, I'm never to speak to this guy again. Unbeknownst to me, he had a he was arrested in the 80s. I don't know <laughs> when you were when you were like a kid. I was a kid. When, when wanted, you were busy playing stickball, this guy was arrested at some I, point. I was playing stickball, and I, I later on I I come to learn who he was when I was. But I you know here's someone who once again, there were no exchanges. There's no money being exchanged. There's no favors being exchanged. I just he's my neighbor and he owns a store. Which whenever I go in there and buy anything to eat, I pay for it. So they were trying to say you can't speak to this guy. Then they would tell me there were people I didn't even know. Some guy took a video of me and Roger. You're not allowed to speak to this guy. I don't know who he is, guy. He took a video. I don't know who he is. He put it on the Internet. Who is he? I don't know. Uh, and, and guess what? I didn't even say hello to him and walked away from the camera. And they all of this, so all of this is January 5th stuff. That's what it was. They all are trying to tie you, one, to Roger Stone, and two, they're trying to tie you so that they can say that you are hanging out with criminals so they can – throw you out on a technicality, this sort of Correct. minor rule thing, which is meant to not have cops be corrupt and hang out with felons and people who have done criminal convictions, which is not a bad idea. I mean, there's in, there's always theory, like a code. It's like a code of conduct violation. In theory, though, it should say that rule that I stated, you cannot wrongfully knowingly associate with someone who is reasonably believed to engage in or likely to engage in criminal activity. And it should say dot, 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 in commission of a crime because many people could have a record. Many well, so how about... You know, my buddy Garrett O'Boyle, his uh, his brother is in prison, and he sees his brother sometimes. Why would he do that? Because it's his brother. It's this is his brother. You know, and it's like, yeah, my brother's in prison, but I'm not helping him commit crimes. I'm going to go visit him in jail, like a brother ought to. You would want that out of a compassionate law enforcement officer. So there's a lot of circumstances. I agree with you. The dot dot dot. That's really critical. Um, tell me about January 5th, where this all kind of got uh, got sideways, and and what the allegation was, and how silly that was. Because I know I've heard the story before on my Badlands channel, but share it with this audience. So, so what happened is on January 5th and 6th, obviously I was in D.C. I was with Roger. I, I really never really left his sight the, the whole time we were together. And uh, they were trying to like say, oh, you were there. I, no, I wasn't there. We never left the hotel. And the only time I did was to try to get the tickets to the Ellipse that never even happened. In fact, I was the one that went back and said, I want to leave, but I couldn't leave. I was trapped there from all the people that surrounded the Willard Hotel, which you you told me you know very well. That is like, and once you're there, you're trapped there. January 5th, he gave two, uh, he was at two legally permitted rallies he spoke at. I was with him. There was nothing nefarious that happened. Nobody did anything. Nobody said anything. Nothing crazy even happened. The next day, early in the morning, I went to try to get these tickets and never, and never materialized. Nobody even knew what the hell was going on out there at the Ellipse. I never even got to the Ellipse. I went back to the hotel, and that was the end of it. Everything that transpired later on had nothing to do with me or Roger. I'm sitting in a hotel going, first of all, I want to leave. Second of all, what the hell is going on out there? Because And you can't leave because you're trapped in a hotel. So this is what was going on. Everything you hear, this clown from MSNBC and these other clowns that were on there, these Twitter sedition hunter clowns, they don't know anything. You weren't there. That's like me saying from a distance, 
you're a criminal because I said so, or no, you weren't there. You need to know facts, which is why I've never been, uh, I never had any federal people come to me because I was never involved in anything. They're probably laughing even hearing about these stories. But the NYPD, they didn't, that didn't stop them. They went right for the kill and say, you are guilty because you have to be guilty. There's no facts to it. And at the very end, Kyle, the investigation, they actually wrote, there's no evidence that Sal wanted to overthrow the government. He's, no evidence that he was ever at the, at the Capitol, which I've never been to this damn building. I don't even know how to get there to this day. I had nothing to do with anything. So guilt by association is not going to work because I could flip the script on you. But here's, a, here's the main thing here, Kyle. While this is going on, while my father's passing away, while all this stuff is, we have police commissioner Shea, the, the police commissioner I worked on there also, and, and, and she was the one attorney me, Keyshawn Sewell, and the, the new police commissioner, Eddie Caban, all associating with who? The guy I keep telling you about, Jimmy Rodriguez, who has a self-admitted criminal, and he owns the restaurant Concert Frito in the Bronx, where they all frequent, and there's nothing but felony hall there. There's nothing but these big-time rappers, neighborhood criminals, all hang out there, pictured with who? Those three people and all their underlings, chief of department, chief of housing, chief of patrol, chief of this, commissioner of that, they're all hanging out with this guy and they're passing judgment on me as this is going on. And that's what's going to be at the forefront of this entire lawsuit as it goes forward. Carl, I just subpoenaed uh, SLA, the uh, State Liquor Authority, as well as the State Division for the Records of Consofrito. It's very obvious that Consofrito is going to be hooked into my lawsuit because how do you explain how do you hang out with this guy? What's Jimmy Rodriguez's relationship with the NYPD, the upper echelon? Why are you associating with this guy? By the way, there's allegations, Kyle. Many allegations come out of Concerfrito. There's and there's another lawsuit with another cop. His name is Romero. He sued the job and mentioned the same things. There's a thousand, there's many pictures. He's so first of all, Jimmy's picture with who? Eddie Caban. By the way, the guy who owns the state liquor. Who's Eddie Caban? Eddie Caban's a police commissioner. You know who okay. owns the state liquor license for Consofrito? The brother, Richard Caban. Richard okay. Caban's a lieutenant, a former retired lieutenant. There's no activity going. There's no um, uh, enforcement activity going on there. When's the last time a cop showed up there to check up if the, the liquor is even good there? See? There's no activity. Be there's nothing but cops. There's parties there. What are you doing? Because there's allegations of discounted meals. There's allegations of fundraising. There's money being exchanged. So now there's political fundraisers. I'll, I'll give you one story right here, Carl. So Carl Hasty has three separate birthday fundraisers at this place. Not one, three. I guess there's three birthdays for one, one person. <laughs> Eric Adams just so happens to show up to every single one of these. Eddie Caban hmm. is there. All the upper echelon NYPD is there while this is going on. All these politicians. And you know who frequents this place? A lot. And it should be, I, I hope that the Trumps and President Trump is listening. Letitia James, who's the attorney general of New York, is literally pictured with Jimmy Rodriguez. He is a self-admitted criminal. And you have to explain why the chief law enforcement officer in the state of New York is hanging out at a place that's got alleged narcotics and, and underage drinking and uh, political fundraising where there might be money and straw donors. I don't know exactly what's going on there. And these other allegations I've stated. What is she doing there with these people? Why is the Bronx Attorney General of, of the Bronx District Attorney, Darcel Clark, why is she always there? Why is she having parties there? Fundraisers, 
So the, all the chief law enforcement people, the attorney general, the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, whose brother just so happens to have the liquor license under his name. What are you all doing there, Kyle? It's, it's like a banana republic. I mean, I know New York's an island, but it's like a banana republic where everybody who's anybody kind of knows somebody. You've told me the story a couple of times. So I've, folks, I've heard the little bit of background and, and you may be catching a disjointed. I highly recommend you go back and watch our show that we did on Badlands because we got into this even more long form. Mm-hmm. But it, it, uh, unless I'm unless I'm misunderstanding it, this like is is kind of like a restaurant like you see in that uh, the first Bruce Wayne uh, as uh, what, what was the guy's name? Uh, uh, Christian Christian Bale. When he oh, did yeah. the first Batman one, and he goes underneath the bridge, and the, and the girl drives him down there. The DA drives him down, and they go, Bruce, you know, we know where they are. This is where there's a judge, and there's a county commissioner, and there's this, and then this, and there's all these people in Gotham, right? And the legend, uh, sort of the the uh, they got the levers of power, and the owner is just kind of hanging out there, and he says, I'd shoot you right here in front of all these people, and nothing would happen. This is a, kind of like a hands off zone, it sounds like, and I'm not from New York, but I have visions of what a corrupt New York would look like. And everything you described to me sounds like a mafia movie from like the 70s yep. that we all kind of remember, except it's not mafiosa right now. It's not uh, mobbed up Italians. This is a, a different group, and these are people that are politically collected, and, and they're working with the NYPD, and they're in the uh, the state, and, uh, and they're working in sort of the state levels of uh, law enforcement, of all things. I mean... What a better place to corrupt than that, it sounds like. So this is very interesting. And you're getting all of this because they came after you. And, and I find this to be the one thing that you and I kind of have in common. You could throw us both on the screen for a second here, Ryan. Uh, one of the things I think is really funny is when you go after guys who spent their whole time developing sources, investigating things that are smelling fishy, and looking and have a, an inquisitive mind and a mind to build a case, and then you take everything that they have, it turns out they may not have anything to lose. They might come after you with everything they got. And that's what kind of what you're doing, unless I understand it incorrectly. No, yeah. And, and uh, listen, there's there's the rats around Eric Adams are coming out of the woodwork because obviously he's a sinking ship. So Eric Adams has told the people around him, start looking for a job. You know, this isn't looking good for me. And you're hearing this because you know people because you used to work with these clowns. Correct. And these clowns, the people he thinks are his friend actually call him a clown behind his back. Sure. And then he has all kinds of people that are doing stupid things online. There's the uh, there these alleged cops. I think they're cops are coming after one of my friends who you're probably going to have in your show later on at some point. And because he's a cop that criticizes them, they're now threatening him. But you understand that there's a trace of this online. Like you get IP addresses, there's subpoenas. Cops are not that bright. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's this new age of cops. They're just not that smart. You don't do these things. You're a civil servant. They will come after you, subpoena you. Internal affairs will come after you the way they did with me. In fact, your case will be even easier. You're online threatening people. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? But this it turns is- out that's actually that's actually a federal crime, which is pretty easy to investigate if the if the information is there. If there's an interest, and it sounds like. Eric Adams has made enemies of the wrong people by getting on the wrong side of the immigration stuff. Plus, he's made it really easy, so he's a sacrificial lamb. And I think the thing that is most interesting to my audience from watching this is even if he is on the right playbook, if he's marching to the tune of the Democrat drummers like he needs to be, he still presents an interesting opportunity. They can sacrifice him with losing nothing because it's still a Democrat stronghold, Mm -hmm. and they can show, look, we're the FBI, we're not partisan. We're willing to grab Eric Adams, just like we're going to grab all these Trump supporters. Look how fair we are. And he presents a very easy opportunity to go do that. And that for him is probably very dangerous right now. I have to imagine. And and But he's crisscrossed because he's had multiple investigations on him. He's got a state and a city one with Alvin Bragg with the straw donor scheme. 
It's funny. He goes to the press conference. I don't, we don't do straw donor scheme. Six guys got indicted because there two guys already flipped on him. And one guy, Eric Ulrich, who was the buildings commissioner, was an advisor to him while he was this, uh, uh, the Queens councilman at the time. He's a Republican. He's an Eric Adams Republican. But he, his conversations on the phone were now the FBI actually sent letters to the people that were talking to him saying, well, we listened into your conversations. We were listening to Eric Ulrich. And you know better than me what that means. And that's a many different people have had this letter given from him. And he just so happens to meet up with Eric Adams one day who tells him, watch your phones and watch your back and takes the chip out of the phone. Funny because they did that to him a year later, the FBI, with Eric Adams. So he surrounds himself with this, this crowd of this cast of characters. You have to understand that Eric Adams is going to draw attention to himself. Even if you're in the FBI, even if you don't want you're saying it's political, how does the FBI or anybody investigating this just turn a blind eye? It's almost impossible because all these people crisscross with him, whether it's Jimmy Rodriguez, Letitia James, uh, this other, Eric Ulrich, this guy, Dwayne Montgomery, is, a, is an inspector who got one of the guys arrested for the, the straw donor scheme. Then you have all these Turkish guys. By the way, these Turkish guys, they hid, it wasn't two people that they raided that day. When they, when they took his chief fundraiser, who now, by the way, has her own attorney. She has her own attorney, Kyle. You know what that means. So she they raided her her home. They raided 12 places at the same time. Kyle could tell everyone how that works in the FBI. They don't just do things sloppy. No, they raided one at a time, places. working your way up. You start at the toes, you work to the head, right? And you work to the head. They had 12 locations at the same time. And one of those locations, by the way, was the Turkish guy that they're talking about who a neighbor, when the news went to go, the media went to go see this one and knock on the guy's door to see what he was going to, you know, make a comment. The neighbor said they saw him leave with six guys in suits and guns into a dark van. You know, I mean, I don't have to explain that to you much. What makes you think that this is not, this is either a political or B going to end well for Eric Adams. He did this to himself. It's not Joe Biden because Joe Biden, this didn't happen for him until this year. They were watching him from years prior. They have all the, all the evidence from 2016 and, and above, probably even 2006 when he became a state senator. So this is not political. They actually are doing their job. And like you said, now they could use it to their advantage saying, look, you accuse us of going after every January 6th person or grandma waving a flag a thousand feet from the lawn that day in January 6th. And we sent 30 people to their house. But guess what? He just dragged in Eric Adams and his whole staff for doing all this corruption. That's right. We're so fair. We're so fair. Like I said, that's it presents a, a fantastic opportunity. Uh, Saul, we're going to have you come back, if you will. I hope you'll come back and keep talking to us. Uh, Ryan just told me we got to have you come on regularly and tell us about stickball and street rules and all the other fun stuff out there. Uh, I want people to be able to follow you. You've got a social media profile that is out there. And like I said, we'll have you back on. We'll have your buddy John on here to start telling stories. I kind of want to dig into it because even though I'm not a New Yorker and even though I actually sort of don't love New York at all, I don't ever want to go there. Uh, New York and Texas, I feel like, has a lot in common. There's a weird kind of thing. Everything New York thinks it is, Texas really is. That's what I used to mess with the New Yorkers that are my family and friends because yeah. I got I married into a New York family. So I'm like uh, Tappan Zee or is it the Cuomo Bridge? It's Tappan Zee, but they renamed it the Mario Cuomo Bridge. But will, you ever call, will you ever call it the Cuomo Bridge ever? 
I never did, but that was something Cuomo spent millions of dollars in the city uh, of the state's money. Yeah, to change, change all change all the signs. I know. Yeah, it. I'm just saying there's weird things that I know about and I feel strongly about as well, even though I'm not from New York. I got some weird New York that is going to come in. I married into it and I, I come by it naturally. So we'll bring you back. We'll have another chat. I love the energy of it. I want to let people know where they can follow you, um, where they can support you if they need to do that sort of thing and uh, how they can keep track of these lawsuits because I know your Twitter has been you, – you send me some fun stuff on there. It's unique to New York. It's not everybody's business, but man – uh, you're lighting some fires and throwing some grenades, which we like. So, I know. Well, I was, is, you're right, Cobb, but see, people need to understand. I know how people follow President Trump's stuff or Joe Biden's stuff, but let's be honest. You know what affects you and your pocket and your family? It's local, local politics. This mayor and his administration, that puts a hurting on New York City. Not Joe Biden. Oh, the illegal immigrants, I understand, but what about everything else he was doing? He's giving away money like a drunken sailor. So you need to look at your local politics because that's what affects you personally. Then you go up the chain. It's a senator, the congressman. But if your mayor is corrupt, your police commissioner is corrupt, good luck in your town because you're not going to survive. Only the strongest or the, you know, the corrupt people would survive. That's how you got to look at it. Yeah. So people need to see that for what it is. When they look at something that you repost or I put up, that could be your town. It's probably your town. I have people that told me Lawrence, Massachusetts has the same thing. They have a police commission that oh, was sure. down. Yeah, I, I think these are not unique uh, situations. I think no. New York's the biggest version of it. It's the easiest way to see it because it's so big. Exactly. Uh, all right, social medias, wh wh where can they follow you at? So you can follow me on uh, Truth Social. It's at Head of the Table. On Twitter, at The Sal Greco. And on Instagram, at The Sal Greco. Uh, Kyle also mentioned I do have my own website. It's uh, SalGreco.com. If you want to support me, click the support button. Then you go to help this NY cop. Any generous donation really goes a long way. And I, I really appreciate if uh, anyone has given or plans on giving because it, it helps me. Because Kyle could tell you, <laughs> trying to get a job when they do this to you and you're, you know, you're all over the radar, it's not easy. And also you could also uh, you know go to the shop and maybe want to buy a shirt or a mug. And uh, that also helps me out. But uh, really, I need everybody's prayers. And if you keep following me, I keep posting these, uh, you know, updates on what's going on with not only my lawsuit, New York City and the country in general. I hope my uh, audience joins me in praying that uh, you one, you get your job back and you're vindicated and you get to tell them to go stick it because that's what needs to happen here uh, Two, We'll see if we can uh, sort out some of these things. We know some connections, folks, if you happen to have a uh, security or a law enforcement position that makes some sense, my friend Sal. I know that he would be uh, he'd be interested at least in, in expanding his horizons because fighting for free, although it's the right thing to do, is an expensive proposition and it's a tough thing to do. Uh, Sal, I'm glad they picked a fighter to screw with and not somebody yeah. who rolled over. I'm glad they picked a uh, a golden eye champion and a stickballer. So, <laughs> my man, thanks for joining me. I had a lot of fun with this one. Like I say, I look forward to doing it again. We'll talk again soon. People will know who you are the next time, so we can just get into some uh, some meat and potatoes of what's happening in the news. But uh, I really do appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you soon, buddy. I appreciate everything you're doing for me, Kyle, and what you're doing with uh, everything in general, because you, you're also, uh, you know, shining a light on some things that maybe people have, uh, you know, they've been in the dark on. And uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I'm glad to call you my friend. Yeah, buddy. Uh, well, we hurt feelings where they need to be heard. All right. Uh, look <laughs> at it again. We'll do it again. Thanks so much, folks, for joining us for the Kyle Serafin Show. And uh, let's go and we'll read some ads and then we'll get out of here. And there he is. It's the Sal Greco, folks.
I don't know when you put a V in front of somebody, they must be the real deal. Uh, also, if you put real in front of somebody, they must be the real deal. Check out Saul Greco's social media pages. We're really glad he stopped by. Uh, just a seriously fun conversation. And let's pay a couple of bills here. Let's say thanks to my friend over at MyPillow. I just talked to their marketing people. Super nice folks. They wanted me to know, let you know that apparently some of you actually still use the 800 number to call. I'm going to read it to you right now. It's 800-544-8939. You don't even have to tell them the promo code. They're supposed to actually just know that it's promo code Kyle. But you can also go to MyPillow.com slash Kyle, and you'll get all the deals that you'd get from one of the bigger shows. But guess what? They don't need it. You're supporting us, and we appreciate that. Super good deal going on right now on the My Slippers down to $49.98. And what does that mean? It means you're losing money if you don't buy it. That's just something one of my buddies used to tell me. He used to literally tell me that if I didn't buy things that were such a good deal, then he would be or I would be losing money. I asked him where he learned that. He said his wife. That sounds realistic. Folks, mypillow.com slash Kyle. If you want to support the show, if you want to support Mike Lindell, and if you want to support probably your archers and your feet in those very comfy looking slippers, you can do all that. And then let's keep things burning over there at the O'Boyle Family Sweatshop. It's the-suspendables.com. Too late for Christmas. Yeah, I think so. Uh, they are only going to be able to work the, the kids' fingers to the bone. They cannot make the Postal Service travel any faster. That being said, it's not too late for New Year's. Maybe you had a suspendables cap in mind. Maybe you were thinking, I need a Sherpa hoodie. It's really cold where I live. Or maybe you live like Texas or Florida. Maybe you're a Steve Friend type, and you're thinking, I'm ringing in the New Year in a pair of Ranger panties, cowboy boots, and no shirt. It's an option. I wouldn't encourage it, but you could do whatever you want to do. Go to the-suspendables.com. Use the promo code KYLE. That's K-Y-L-E. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's always the same. You save 10% on any of your orders right there. You can also buy yourself a three-pack of the lapel pins, the white ones. They are for sale. They are things that you can show people that you support the suspendables, that you're willing to do the right thing no matter what, even though it might cost you. We should actually have a uh, kind of a clever thing. The white pin kind of stands for white martyrdom. I think that's what it is. The-suspendables.com, the merch store. Folks, check that out. And uh, let's do a last little piece here, a five-star review. Here it is. Let's read this one right here coming in. It says, the butterfly effect. It's from Beer Me. I like Beer Me. Butterfly effect is in effect. Really enjoy your podcast. And the support crew, Ryan et al., I was introduced to you and your show via Bongino, like so many of you were. And as a result of tuning in, I now follow you and Ryan, as well as your fellow suspendables, SF and GOB. We know who those are. We know what they're talking about. Located in the south, central Georgia, zigzagging across acres of peanuts and cotton for 10 to 12 hours a day. I typically enjoy catching your podcast, albeit a day later than broadcast, along with a few others. Thanks again for your daily diligence and good luck with your ex-girlfriend situation. Oh, Hank. Hank from Wilcox County, Georgia, lets us know. He knows what the ex-girlfriend's about. And she is a nasty thing. Hopefully she stays out of everybody's business. That is the FBI for those of you who are new to the show and you don't know that I refer to my former job as kind of like my crazy ex-girlfriend. That's what it's all about. All right. We've really enjoyed having you guys. I hope that you have a very, very Merry Christmas. I hope you have a blessed day with friends and family. And if you don't have that, we will be back just after Christmas and we will be back on Tuesday to uh, to ring in the last bit of this year and the, what will that be? The second day of Christmas? We'll be here for the second day of Christmas. So I hope you guys have a beautiful, beautiful weekend and we will talk very, very soon. All right. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.